Romans chapter 1. I'm going to do a little bit different than I did last week. I'm going to read a, a few scriptures and then we'll talk about those. Last week we talked about that Paul was the author of Romans, that it was probably his greatest work after about 20 years of preaching, starting churches, and uh, it was a book that was unique in that it does not deal with a specific church issue or problem, but it's really more about theology and the gospel of Christ. And we talked about, and we're going to reinforce that tonight, that the righteousness of God is the theme of the whole book. As a matter of fact, the first two verses that we're going to read, you could really say that they are the thesis statement for the book of Romans. Uh, we are going to read verse 16 and verse 17, and then kind of almost go a little bit line by line down through this chapter. Uh, let's read. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's a very familiar portion of Scripture. And here, Paul is introducing the theme of the letter, which is the righteousness of God. But it's the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he simply says, I am not ashamed. It's a bold statement, amen? Uh, I'm not ashamed. So Paul is saying, that I'm not ashamed, but there's a reason why he is not ashamed, and that is because of the power of the gospel and what the gospel is about. He's not ashamed because he didn't create the gospel, he didn't make up the gospel, and the gospel is centered on Jesus Christ, as we talked a little bit last week. He's not ashamed of a gospel that is centered on a crucified Jewish Savior. Now, realize that Paul is sending this message not to an area that is exclusively Jewish, but to an area that Jews have traveled to, but not everybody there is from Jerusalem or Israel. He's not ashamed and he has to explain the gospel. Imagine trying to explain the gospel to someone who has never heard about the gospel. Don't know who Jesus is. Don't know maybe who God is or that mankind ever even sinned or the need for a savior, right? So that's what Paul is kind of doing. He's introducing Jesus. Now, he's introducing this to the church in Rome. But the area is not an exclusively Christian area. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out it's definitely not an exclusively Christian area. So he's not ashamed for it is the power of God to salvation. So there is power 
in the gospel. It's an inherent power. It's not powerful because I preach it with power, other than the anointing, right? It's not because of the way I deliver it, but simply the message of the gospel has power. Power within it, not something added to it, but its own power. And that power lifts people up out of a sinful state and puts them and delivers them and changes them from a state of a sinful person into the state of a righteous person by God. And they're delivered from the power of darkness and have stepped into the kingdom of light. So that's the power that we're talking about, power to transform, to lift people up. And it's not just powerful because of its transformative power, but because it is God's power, right? It is the power of God to salvation. Here's Paul introducing this powerful gospel to Rome. I mean, notice Rome was the most powerful place in the world at this time. And Rome thought they knew something about power, but they didn't know this kind of power, which is the power uh, to make people righteous before God. Despite all of the power that was within Rome, they had no power to change a person from a sinful state to a righteous state. Only the gospel has that kind of power. Who is it for? Is it for some people who believe? It's for everyone, whosoever will. In other words, God won't withhold salvation from anyone who believes. As a matter of fact, that is the only requirement is that you believe, that you have faith. It doesn't say that you have to be good before you can be saved. It doesn't say you have to do X, Y, and Z before you can be saved. We know that the power of the gospel does change our life and transform us, but the only requirement to be saved is to believe upon the Lord. So that's, that's important. It is for those who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness. The word righteousness means I justify. So think about this. If God justifies a sinner, it does not mean that he has to search to prove that that sinner was right. Because he wasn't. It does not even mean that he makes the sinner a good man or a good woman. What it does mean is that God treats the sinner as if he had never been a sinner at all. That's the power of God deeming us righteous. Not because we did anything, but because he did it all. He paid for it all. How many have ever heard of Martin Luther? Essentially the if you will, the father of Protestantism. He's the one who nailed the 95 Thesis to the Catholic, to the door of the Catholic um, the church. Really, what he is known for is discovering 
that this righteousness mentioned in Romans is God's righteousness. And he, when he describes that he figured this out, he said, I was never any happier because what it means is that he said God's verdict of righteousness upon the believer. It's a verdict. God says, you are now righteous. I didn't do anything except believe. You're now righteous, right? That's the way God does things. Is he declares, and he it is a verdict. What does that mean? What is God? He's the, the judge. So the judge gives the verdict and it says, that you are now righteous and God has declared you to be that way uh, not because you live righteously but because God declared that you are the right righteousness of God for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith this is kind of an interesting little phrase what does that mean from faith to faith Possibly it means by faith from beginning to end. So salvation, what does the Bible tell us? It comes by grace through faith, right? God's grace makes it possible. We simply believe upon it and we're saved, right? Uh, so what is this emphasizing? It emphasizes that salvation is dependent upon faith from the beginning to the end. So it's from faith to faith. It can, it can speak of our, our, our growth and our, and our spiritual walk. Commentaries are saying, you know, from first to last. In other words, it's a, which the ne next statement, uh, or the next statement is the just shall live by faith. So when you look at that, not only are we, is faith involved, it's through faith, and from faith to faith, or from faith from the beginning to the end, but not only that, but the Christian literally lives by faith. Sometimes we recognize we're living by faith, right? And sometimes we don't necessarily recognize we're living by faith. When we are going through trials and struggles, I mean, it's pretty easy to recognize that I gotta live by faith. But we also have to live by faith when things seem good. Because the just or the justified saints of God live by faith. Not only faith to trust in God to save us, but faith to trust in God to keep us. Jason's talking about our kind of our walk. He's saying as we're growing in Christ, we're developing in faith. Romans, let's look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We're going to come back to those two words, so you might want to keep those in mind. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What does that statement mean? The wrath of, of God is revealed from heaven. Do you know that God has wrath upon sin and upon the sinner? And guess what? It's deserved uh, because 
the sinner has rejected God and rejected God's plan. God reveals his wrath upon the human race uh, and we deserve that wrath. Now, many people cringe when you talk about the wrath of God, but this is not like the wrath of man. When mankind gets angry, most of the time it is because he is motivated by selfish reasons. Why did they do that to me? I should have been able to do this, right? So selfishness is involved when mankind is angry, typically. We may be angry because we want to get revenge. That's not the kind of wrath that we're talking about here. We're talking about a God kind of wrath. The wrath of God is completely righteous in character. In other words, when God gets angry, he does not sin. When Jesus turned over the tables in the temple and he pushed the money changers out and the sellers out, he did not sin. He was angry. The Bible says he was angry. I mean, he made a whip and he turned over the tables and he's chasing them out. But he never sinned in any of that. For it was a righteous wrath that he had. Question, I don't know if I even uh, just thought of this. Can we have a righteous anger? Is it possible? I think maybe we can. I think we have to be very careful. We have to make up our mind to because if we get motivated by selfishness or pride, uh, many times we get angry because someone hurt our pride. Yeah, it can't be a motivation of you're making me look bad, but you're hindering the work of God, maybe. Uh, that kind of motivation. So. Uh, the wrath of God is completely righteous in nature. Uh, one of the commentators said that wrath, a God kind of wrath, is the holy revulsion of God against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. So God has wrath against things that contradict his holiness. He does not like it. He and he's completely righteous in being that way. The Bible tells us that we're to be holy because God is holy. God has an, uh, if you will, a righteous indignation is a word that I've heard uh, used uh, whenever we are against that which contradicts his holiness. Your actions are right, but your motivations are incorrect if you're doing it just to impress God. I don't know that we ever really impress God, but from a human standpoint, because God even says, hey, your, your righteousness is not a more than a dirty rat. Anyway, that word goes, it's not just dirt, okay? Uh, your, 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 your unrighteousness, your righteousness, I should say, is filthiness, is what God's saying. Why would Paul talk about the wrath of God when he's explaining salvation? His goal is the righteousness of God to explain how the gospel describes the righteousness of God and, and plays into the righteousness of God. So why is he talking about the wrath of God? 
if you don't accept God's righteousness, then you're going to end up on that side of, of, of it, right? He hates sin. God hates sin. And here what Paul is doing in describing God's wrath is that he is demonstrating the absolute necessity for the good news of the gospel. If we never understand our need for a savior, then we'll never get saved. And you will face the wrath of God. So we must understand that if we sin, we will face the wrath of God. And therefore, we need the good news of the gospel. Because I can't work for it. I can't make myself righteous. I can't do enough to earn salvation. So I have to accept the gospel message that Christ did it all for me. On our own, we'll never escape the wrath of God. We won't. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of scary. But for the grace of God, we want to escape the wrath of God. Therefore, Paul is telling us about the righteousness of God and how we can be deemed righteous, not because of our works, but because of what Christ has already done. So it used two words in that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What would an ungodliness be? It's kind of contained in the word. Anything without God, anything uh, that offends or is offensive to God, and any way that we don't honor God and don't live like God, I guess I should say, uh, then that's ungodliness. How, how many ever get up in the morning and you just feel real godly? Don't ask me how godly I am before I have, you know, some caffeine. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But sometimes just our very nature takes over and we feel ungodly. We don't feel like we're like God, even though we're created in God's image. So anything that is against God is ungodliness. It refers to our offenses against God. So then what would unrighteousness be? If you're not offending God, then... Who are you offending? You're offending man. So unrighteousness is the sins of man against man. So you have ungodliness, which is against God. Unrighteousness, which is against our fellow man. So anytime you treat someone wrongly or sin against them or mistreat them, then we are being unrighteous in our character. We're not treating them right, like they deserve, right? So there's the, those two terms there, and I think it's important for us to understand. Let me, let me go back and read the whole thing. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who is suppressing the truth? Man is. How many knows we fight against God's righteousness. We don't want to obey God's righteousness. We don't want to live for God naturally. Okay, I'm not talking about it as a Christian. I'm talking about it as human nature. We fight against God. We disregard God. 
and we deliberately go against his laws. If that were not true, Adam and Eve would not have failed the test in the garden. Mankind always suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, we fight against God. We won't ever win, but we fight against God. Let's go on. I'm moving along a little bit here. Romans 1, chapter 19 through 23. And I'm going to read this whole thing, and we're going to kind of just do like we did in that first part of the chapter. We're going to read verses 19 through 23. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without excuse. That is a very key phrase right there. We are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God and into, an, into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. What is all of this saying? His invisible attributes are clearly seen. How is God, this God that we can't see, this God that's in heaven, how does God reveal himself? What's the scripture say? He reveals himself through what? Through nature, through his creation, right? So even a person who maybe hasn't necessarily heard the gospel message Although you'll get some arguments from people. People know that there is a God based upon creation. And people who deny it are very foolish. I'm just saying what the Bible says. Because the very heavens and the earth and the uh, way things are made and the order and all of those things and the universes and all of those things, they speak of God. They testify that there is a God. When I had a uh, apologetics class, this is one verse that we kind of use. The Bible says that we can know that there is a God because his very works and his creation testify that there is. Then you get into this whole argument about when did it all begin? You know, they want to talk about a big boom, big bang, however you want to say that, but what started that? What was there? And you can't get a big bang out of a nothingness. Here, this scripture is telling us that God's divine nature is literally testified, revealed to us by his creation. And not only is it revealed, but it is clearly seen. There's clarity. There's such clarity that there is a God. Let me heard that storm last night. Wow. I mean, it shook our house. Just the power and the majesty of, of the nature that God created, how can we even deny that there's a God? And that's what the scripture is saying. It is very clearly 
seen, and because of that, we are without excuse for rejecting that there is a God. No excuse. Yeah, I remember the first time, well, the first time I was old enough to really remember it, because I'm sure my mom and dad probably took me uh, to see it when I was too young to remember, but wow. I mean, it's glorious. The majesty of God's creation, and that is not even, even the fullness of it. We look at the vastness of the skies and the universes and the now they're coming out with terms like megaverses and things like that, you know, just expanses and expanses of the universe. And if you can't see God's glory in that and God's reality in that, then you're in denial. So it's clearly seen and we have no excuse for rejecting it. That's why Paul can I tell you that God does not want to hide from man? God is revealing himself to us all the time. And so this part of this revelation of God is through the person of Jesus Christ and that gospel message. That's a revelation. Let me describe it this way. If we're overwhelmed by God's creation and we don't really see God, then what God did was he said, okay, if you don't see me in that, then I'll come to you in person. And that's what Jesus did. He came to us. He, he is God in human form and skin. and He's clearly seen. Now here's the problem. Everybody's without excuse. So if someone tells you that they do not believe in God, they have believed a lie or they have deceived themselves. So there's no excuse. So that means they really do know that there is a God. They might have been deceived at some point, but in their heart of hearts, people know there's a God. I've heard it said this way before, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Uh, whenever someone's in trouble and their life is at jeopardy, even if they don't know how to pray, guess who they're calling? Somebody who knows how to pray or they're calling on God themselves, right? The problem is, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. What's that a description of? That's a description of ungodliness. We know there's a God, but we don't glorify Him as God. So that's an action against God, right? The problem is not that we didn't know that there's a God. Because how many knows that if you don't know that there's a God, then you might have an excuse. But God's saying nobody, everybody within their heart of hearts, when it comes down to it, knows that they're a God because he's revealed himself through creation and many other ways. When we don't recognize him as God, then and don't glorify him, then that's the problem. Here's this phrase, they knew God, yet they did not glorify him as God. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, evangelist, said knowledge is of no use if it does not lead to holy practice. So you can know there's a God, but if it doesn't change you, 
doesn't lead to a holy practice, then it's of no good. There's a lot of people who believe in God. The Bible tells us that even the devils, the demons, believe that there is a God, but they're not acting like there's a God, right? They're serving Satan. They're serving evil. So we don't recognize God for who he is, but even worse than that is that we make God to be something like us or even less. So when you get birds and you know people worshiping birds and people worshiping all these uh, little things that are beneath, even beneath man, that's where idol worship and things like that come into play. I mean, it was that we're made in God's image, but we don't compare to God. We can, if we don't watch it, we can come, become guilty of serving a God that has been made in our image and not the opposite. We are made in God's image and likeness. And that's kind of what we're they're saying here. It's interesting to me that it says, although they knew God and they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. It's probably about the worst thing that you can say concerning God is that you're not thankful for God, for what he's done for you, for who he is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I love Spurgeon's quotes because so, so many times they just come right down to the heart of the matter. He said, when you say that a man is not thankful to God, you have said about the worst thing that you can say of a man. Wow, that's pretty powerful. How many knows we need to be thankful, amen, uh, for God and for what he's done for us? Professing to be wise, they became fools. How many knows when we reject God, then we become foolish? This was, wow. 1984 to 1991 that I went to college at University of Kentucky. In my times there, not every professor, not even most professors, but some professors spoke of there not being a God in the early 80s and, I mean, mid 80s and early 90s. Did you know our kids are being bombarded by professors now who openly speak and say that there is no God and make fun of people who believe that there is a God because this is what it is. They profess themselves to be wise, but yet they are fools. When we reject God and God's revelation, it doesn't make us smarter. See, that's what happens when you're in college and you say something about God, then you get this attitude back that says, I'm smarter than you because poor little you, you still believe in God. That's, that's the kind of attitude that you get sometimes. And the real shame is now in modern days, even in, I'm gonna put it in quote marks, even in schools of ministry, or even in some very progressive universities that are thought to be Christian, the same kind of attitude is coming out of those now. Very sad that we're seeing that. 
I'm going to read this last section, and if we don't get to it all, it's okay. Um, there's just a couple things in there that I think I need to point out for sure. So let's look at Romans 1, 24 through 32. We'll finish reading it. And even if we don't finish talking about everything, we can come back to that. Therefore, God also gave them up. God also gave them up, or God gave them up, is repeated in some form or fashion three times in verses 24 through 28. God gave them up. We're going to talk about what that means, but I want to point that out. Uh, and that is a part of your questions. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up, that's number two, to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what, it, what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, in other words, they didn't want to think about God, they didn't want to believe that there was a God, God gave them over, that's the third way, He gave them over, He gave them up, to a debased, King James says, to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, <coughs> deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Well, you ought to point it out to your kids. It's in this list of very vile things. <laughs> uh, disobedient to, to parents, undiscerning untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Here's this introduction of God's righteousness, God's plan of salvation, and then if you don't receive that, what begins to happen is that all these acts of unrighteousness will be prevalent. So God gave them up. What does that mean? God gave them up. Gave them over to what they were desiring. He let them do their own thing. Whatever their evil heart desired, God allowed them to do it. But in allowing it, it was not the kindness of God, but the wrath of God that was at play when he allowed them to do it. Now that may seem contradictory because our children would think we were being kind if we let them do everything that they wanted to do. But how many knows that sometimes when you let someone do what they want to do, that there's a learning experience in that and you're allowing them to face the hardships that go along with doing something that's not right. 
So God gives them up to experience the self-destructive result of sin. God doesn't really even have to punish you himself if he allows you to do your own thing and you're going to bring destruction upon yourself. Sin is a very destructive thing. This phrase is so important in these verses that Paul re repeats it three times. Uh, it is actually God's wrath that allows us to go on destroying ourselves with sin. God gave them up to vile passions, it says. When we think about Bible times, we have a tendency to think that Bible times were more, more holy than they are now. That is incorrect thinking. Now, some places might have been more holy than where we are now, but as a whole, who I mean, knows the world's just evil and always has been and always will be if they're not following God. Paul is believed that he wrote this from Corinth when he was there for an extended time and in Corinth, there was all sorts of sexual immorality practiced openly and freely. Paul wasn't writing to a culture that agreed with him when he talked about all these sexual sins and how wrong they were. He was writing to a culture that said, that's fine, that's good, do whatever you want to. For even their women exchanged their natural use. Then he goes on in the next verse to talk about men doing the same thing. So Paul talks about homosexuality, both male and female, as an example of God giving mankind over to uncleanness and lust. As a matter of fact, Nero, who was the emperor at that time, he was against the Christians and he persecuted them and all of that. But what I just found out through studying this week is that Nero was in power when Paul wrote this and when he was not too long into being the emperor, he openly married a young boy and made him his wife. And then if that wasn't bad enough, later on in his life, he, op he openly lived with a man and then Nero was the wife. So you see that this is how corrupt this is. This just to prove that Paul's not writing this in an area that's very pristine and preach it, Brother Paul. No, they were not doing that. They were like, what do you mean? The emperor has gay relationships, right? They were against what he was preaching. It says they received those who practice homosexual conduct, receiving themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. I'm going to say this, but I believe every sin, this is true for every sin. Homosexual conduct has within itself a penalty. And I, you, you can see that there are some diseases that are very prevalent in homosexual practices that are not so prevalent in heterosexual uh, practices, but also although some heterosexuals have mental and emotional issues, they are more prevalent in the homosexual society. What is this saying? There's a penalty for sin. And this specifically is saying there's a penalty 
contained within this homosexual lifestyle. And it's because God is allowing them to pursue that. He's allowing them to do that. And in itself, within that sin, there is a judgment or a penalty already contained with it. Uh, just interesting. Then it says that God turns us over to a debased or reprobate mind. So in other words, he says, if you're going to actively, physically do these things, then I'm going to allow your, your mind to be reprobate. I'm going to allow you to be debased. And so we can sin against God, not only in our actions, but in our mindset. Uh, God is allowing this to happen. One last thing, and then we'll go to questions. Envy is in this list. Commentary that I was reading pulled out some of these sinful or examples of ways that aren't fitting to live. And envy, and we look at we look at envy, and we think, you know, well, everybody envies. You know, somebody's got a, a Lamborghini or a Porsche, and you might want to have. You know, we feel like maybe envy is a little sin. How many knows we sometimes categorize sin in our own mind? But envy is so powerful that in a sense, it was what put Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, 18 tells us that Pilate knew himself that the Jews had handed Jesus over because of envy. In other words, the religious Jewish leaders were envious of Jesus because he had such a following and people were coming after him that they said, hey, we gotta get rid of him. So envy, in a sense, put Jesus on the cross. So when we look at sins, we have to be careful how we categorize them. I mean, those that there's no big sins and little sins. We're either working in ungodliness or in unrighteousness. They're all sin. Sin against one another or sin against God. There's only two categories, and they're both sin. And they're both bad. And all the other category, all the other sins are contained within those. So question number one, define ungodliness. It should be God. Man's God. offenses against God. What is unrighteousness then? Sins of man against man. Sins of man against man. That's question number two. Question number three, the wrath of God is completely righteous in character. Why is mankind without excuse for rejecting God? And that's found in verse 20. The nature of creation. Because of creation testifying of, of God, of his power, of his Godhead. So it's the very nature works without excuse because of what God has created. Question number five. What phrase did Paul use three times in verses 24 through 28? God gave them up. God gave them up. Question six. What? Oh, I didn't talk about this. In that scripture, it says, God gave them up who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. It's a very, it's a definite word. It doesn't say for a lie. It says the lie. 
So what lie did God give us up to? Well, who if we exchange the truth of God for the lie? The lie is idolatry. We put ourselves in the place of God. So the lie is found in Genesis 3, 5. And Satan told it to Eve. You will be like God. That's the lie. We exchange the truth of God for the lie. How many knows that we are not like God and that we can sin and we are not righteous without the righteousness of God? That's what this is speaking. That's the whole lie. We, we think about, you know, all the other lies, but the whole lie is the serpent came to Eve and said, you, you want to be like God? You can be like God, which was the lie. So the lie is idolatry or the lie is the statement that you will be like God. Question number seven. The freedom to disobey God should be seen as God's judgment. I didn't go through that clearly. Not his kindness. So the freedom to disobey God, we should see that freedom to sin as God's judgment and not his kindness. Question number, number eight. Homosexual conduct has within itself a what? A penalty.